Perhaps you've heard of an African ruler named Jean uh, Bedel Bokassa. On December 4, 1977, in Bengai, the capital of the Central of African Empire, the world press witnessed his coronation, Imperial Majesty Bokassa I. The price tag for that one event, which was designed and choreographed by this famous French designer, was $25 million. is estimated today to be around $80 million. And this procession began with Bacasa's eight, um, eight of Bacasa's 29 official uh, parade, his children parading down to their seats. And his favorite wife of his nine wives, Catherine, was wearing a $73,000 gown, which had, had, had pearls and, and gold inlaid and sewed in it. I think somewhere in the, the neighborhood of, uh, I think it was 785,000 uh, sewn-in pearls. And he was wearing a robe of the same stature. It was like 32 pounds of gold and pearls. On his brow, he wore a gold crown, laurel wreath. Um, like those would have been worn by Roman uh, consults. As the sacred march came to conclusion, Bacasa seated himself on a $2.5 million uh, eagle throne. And at the time of his coronation, he took that that laurel wreath off his head and he placed on his head a $2.5 million crown that was topped with 80 carat diamond, with an 80 carat diamond. Bacasa's reign was not as grand as his coronation though. He was overthrown in 1979. He was eventually put on trial for treason and murder. In 1987, he was cleared of charges of cannibalism, but found guilty of murder of school children and other crimes. He was sentenced to life in solitary confinement. Bukasa is just one of the many cruel dictators that we read about in the pages of our history books. Our passage this morning shows us a different kind of king. <laughs> he was not the king everyone had expected. He was not the king everyone wanted, but he was the king that everyone needed. His entry was different. There was no golden throne, no stretch limo, no entourage. His glory is different. His kingdom is different. He has a different way of winning his followers. So we find ourselves in John chapter 12 in Jerusalem during the time of the Passover feast. And on that day, which is uh, commonly known right now for us in the modern Christian calendar, uh, which is Palm Sunday, the beginning of what we now call the, the Passion Week. And so one of the 
It's, it's one of the few events that's mentioned in all four Gospels. So, beginning in verse 12 of John chapter 12, the text reads this way. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. John tells us that there's a crowd gathered together because they heard Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. And they were waving palm branches. Date palms were abundant in Israel and, and palms became a symbolic of, national, uh, of Jewish nationalism. It would be equivalent of waving the flag uh, of Israel as he was coming into town. When the temple was rededicated during the, uh, the, inter, the intertestament period, during the, the Maccabean era, uh, palms were used in the celebration. And during major wars against, uh, against Rome, palms were, were stamped on the, the coins that they had. And so everything the crowd says is correct. It's biblical. It's, it's accurate. And they quote Psalm 118 here when they say, when they cry out, Hosanna, which means salvation or, or save us. It's a Hebrew word transliterated into Greek, which is then transliterated into English. And everything they say has this messianic overtones. They recognize Jesus for, for who he is. He is the anointed king. However, their understanding of his kingship is too narrow. They have misconceptions about the type of king he would be. You see, they wanted a political liberator. They wanted Jesus to, to call for arms and drive out the Romans, to, to wage war against Roman tyranny. And this is the same thing they wanted back in chapter 6. I don't know if you remember that. Jesus basically takes one kid's shrimp, uh, tilapia, po' boy, and he feeds 5,000 people. Right? And they wanted to come and make him king right then and there. And what does Jesus do? He headed for the hills. He was like, I'm not having any of this right now. And he prayed all night there. And, and, and he got away as quickly as he could. Now, this time, it's different. He's now no longer running away from it, but, in, but embracing it. And he's not embracing their expectations. He has a different picture that he wants to paint about his kingship. Verse 14 says, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered what these things that, that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. You see, Jesus tries to temper everyone's zeal 
And so he rides in on a donkey. And the donkey of these days was not the type of donkeys that maybe you have in mind that we have here that are really quite large. No, this is more like an adult trying to get into a power wheel. Right? Your knees are kind of up by your face. This, this is the same thing. If the type of donkey he would have gotten on would have required a grown man to pick his feet up and hover them off the ground. And Jesus never denies that he is king, but the donkey was meant to show them that he was the king God the Father appointed. Not the type of king they were imagining. Nazareth? A carpenter's son? A donkey? It was a way to say, calm down. <laughs> I'm not coming on a war horse, although one day I will. I'm not coming with soldiers. And he shows that the, what kind of king he really is. In verse 15, uh, John quotes Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, about the promise of the coming king. And I believe John wants us to see that Jesus didn't come into Jerusalem as a political or economic or social advocate for Israel. He came to establish a kingdom. A kingdom reign over all nations, including Israel and Rome. A reign of grace in the hearts of his followers. And a reign of peace over all that he has made. And this ultimately is where... Jesus brings hope by, by rescuing them from, this, uh, fr from these empty promises of the hype. Much like the empty promises that we saw of, of, of King Bukasa, of his rulership. Jesus is showing, however, in a positive way, in a redemptive way, that their expectations are not going to be met. Think about this. This is by way of application, I guess. What gets people more excited? Talk about politics or talks about Jesus? Political enthusiasm is the order of the day, is it not? People are hoping that this king would overthrow the Romans. And many people... In, in our own culture, the first thing they do is check in the morning, they check their phone and they read the news. And then they're mad all day because there's no good news. And so we, we need good news for a change. Good news that, that brings hope. Good news that, that brings a future. And it's fine and good for Christians to be in politics, for to be sure. But our hope is not on Capitol Hill. Our hope is on Calvary's Hill. You see, the, the people had a bigger problem than Rome. A much bigger problem. And that's what Jesus came to save them, came to, to save us from. Which was ultimately death and condemnation. Separation from God forever. And this is the, this is the biggest issue of our day. 
not believing in Christ. And as we'll see when we come back to John chapter 12, that is the, the central theme. He's addressing unbelief. Christ has come to rescue us from looking for hope in all the wrong places and in all the wrong people and even in our own efforts. So there's this first an appointment, an announcement of the embraced kingship, kingship of Jesus. And then there are these responses that come out in the text of that kingship. And it begins with his own disciples. Their response was confusion. Much like what we see over and over and over again in the disciples' life. They don't understand everything. However, John makes the point to show, but they do understand later on when he's glorified. They, they begin to see all these signs that, 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 that God uh, was doing and that Christ was fulfilling. So they didn't understand it first. And then there's this response from the Pharisees. Now notice how John weaves his story together in a way to, to make plain that this kingship, which they're declaring and Jesus is receiving, he's, is, is bigger than the kingship of Israel. This is, really, this is a really important concept, but really important to see how he does this. John wants us to see that he is not just the king of Israel, but he is also the king of the world. Verse 17, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, what an odd thing to say. They're in Jerusalem. People have come to the Passover. And he uses this word cosmos. The Pharisees do. This is, this is the word they use. And, and the world, and they say the world has gone after him. And clearly this is a sign of frustration. I mean, they don't know the extent. They're speaking truth, but they don't know the extent of that truth they're speaking. And Jesus is he's growing in popularity. He's growing in his influence. And the Pharisees, this is the last thing they want. This is the last thing they want to see happen. So there's a response from the disciples. There's a response from the Pharisees. And then there's this response from the Greeks. And it's no coincidence at this point that the Greeks show up. And this brings up my first point that I want to draw from the text this morning. Jesus' kingdom isn't one nation, but is worldwide and includes both Jew and Gentile. By the way, most of you in here are Gentile. This makes me think about... Um, my kids, they love Halloween, they love to dress up, and they love to go trick-or-treating. And uh, every year, my wife and I always joke about uh, the, the annual candy tax that we implement at the house. 
And I always say to them, uh, I mean, you think you're the only one that's going to benefit from trick-or-treating and getting all this candy? Like someone has to eat all the Reese's peanut butter cups, right? It's not going to be you. In a much more profound way, the inclusion of this unmerited favor in the kingship of Christ is not exclusive to the Jews. Just like trick-or-treating, in a much more less substantial way, right? The benefit of the candy is not only for my sons. My wife and I get to have Reese's peanut butter cups. And so in a much more profound way, the inclusion of this unmerited favor, of the kingship of Christ, is not exclusive to the Jews alone. Verse 20, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these, uh, so these the Greeks, that is, came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. This is, the, this is the main thing I want you to capture of this. that John is making a shift to show us the expanse of the kingdom of Christ. God's plan, he's giving us a, a foreshadow of what is to come. God's plan was always been for all the nations and not just for Israel. All the nations will, will bow and worship before him. In the book of Acts, the gospel spreads to both Jew and Gentile and brings them into this new, unique community of faith called the church. But the seed has been sown throughout the Old Testament. From Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham that all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Isaiah prepares his people for the coming king and calls him a light of all the nations, a light to all the nations. Through him, God's salvation will reach to the end of the earth. And the Messiah was never only a king for Israel. He was coming to call worshipers of every tribe, every tongue, of every people group, to worship the true God. And so through Israel, though Israel was hoping for a nationalistic, political savior, God sent Jesus to be a light to all men. To call both Jew and Gentile to saving faith through his work. And the Greeks say, Philip, we wish to see Jesus. Now, why would they ask to see Jesus is, is not clear. We don't, we don't know for sure. Their curiosity may be just triggered by the buzz of all the things that are going on. And some people actually argue that, that it's actually from Jesus cleansing the temple from Mark chapter 11. This is right around the time when he would have done that. Uh, and, and Jesus makes this declaration that the temple was to be a house of prayer for all the nations. So some people believe that it was this sign that, 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 that drove them to want to come to find Jesus. Nevertheless, 
I just love this phrase, and it's something we can draw from. This phrase is, quite frankly, you can ask any of the pastors, any of the elders here, uh, this, this is central to our ministry philosophy here at Capshaw. Our greatest desire is for you to see and marvel the work of Jesus Christ. And so, whether in a naive way or in a very intentional way, we pray you're asking us, show us Jesus. This phrase, though, it triggers Jesus' announcement for his plan of redemption. So here's the, the truth for the Greeks. Here's the, the truth that matters for Capshaw. Verse 23, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's the first thing he says in response to them wanting to see Jesus. He says, I'm on my way to glory. I'm going to be so glorious that they will want to see me. Oh, oh yes, they will want to see me. However, it's not going to happen in the way you would think. Glory is, is, is just over the horizon. In five or six days from now, I will be glorified. Not, and this is not going to happen the way you think. Let's see if you want to be identified with me. Let's see if you want to follow me, to serve me. He says, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And this is very clear. We know exactly what he's talking about. He's saying, I'm on my way to glory, but on the way, I must be like the grain that falls into the ground and dies. Otherwise, no one is going to come with me to glory. If I don't die, they're, 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 I can't have Greeks with me. I can't have Jews with me. I can't have Americans with me. I can't have uh, people from the greater Huntsville area with me. No fruit is going to come unless the seed dies. And notice also the certainty of the way Jesus says it. He's not wringing his hands saying, I hope someone takes advantage of of what I did for sinners. He's not begging. He's not pleading. He doesn't say his death might produce fruit. But he says it will produce fruit. Listen. If you are a Christian today. Then you are the fruit. You are the fruit that has come from the seed going into the ground. Christ's death was, has borne fruit around the world for hundreds of years. And you and I are here today because of this work. 
And this is his analogy of the cross. This, it is the, the truth about him. It is what he is coming to do. And now he gives us the, the application of the cross. So he's just given us this analogy of the cross. Now he's going to give us this application of the cross. And so what is the effect of being the fruit of the cross? Verse 25 and 26 and this is where we're going to find our final point this morning, and I'm done, I promise. That Jesus has come that we might die to ourselves and live for Christ. Jesus has come that we might die to ourselves and live for Christ. Whoever, verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. He's not talking about himself anymore. He's saying, if you want to be a part of this, then this is your life. This, this is what your life is going to be about if you are going to follow me. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And notice that the imperative flows from the indicative. All my English majors in here. I'm not an English major. I had, to, I had to read about this, right? I had to learn about this later on in life as I was beginning to study the Bible. This, these imperative that almost seem like commands in verses 25 and 26... They come out of what Jesus has just declared about himself being the seed that goes into the ground. It's never the other way around. We never do these things so that we might earn favor from God. These things are the fruit. These things are the byproduct. These things are the overflow of the person that is in Christ. This is, this is the seed that he's talking about to eat. And this is the fruit of the seed that he's talking about to Eve. Jesus has come that, that we might die to ourselves and live for Christ. And Jesus is showing us that the Christian life, it's going to be hard. It's going to cost you something. But it is going to be glorious. We too must die in order to live. And here, here's the great paradox of the Christian life. We find life by dying to self and following Jesus. Do you get it? We find life. The Christian life is a crucified life. Remember that when someone says, you sometimes hear people say things like this. Um, that Christianity is for those who need a crutch. Well, you know, based off this passage, you can respond back. I don't need a crutch. I need a cross. You get a cross. So we don't choose Christianity because it gives us some kind of artificial comfort. We choose it because we get Christ. That's the end that we are aiming for. 
We get truth. We get to make our lives count as, as we bear fruit and get, and, and get glory after this suffering. And so the, the great church leader, this makes me think about the great church leader and caregiver of orphans, George Mueller. He's written a book, Delighted in God. And he was a man who actually documented thousands of thousands of prayers in his lifetime. And he could go back and show you thousands and thousands of ways God had answered his prayers. I would highly recommend his book, Delighted in God. Um, but the great church leader, this is what he said. He was once asked, what has been the secret to your life? The secret of your life. And George Mueller said, there was a day when I died. Died to George Mueller. His opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. Died to the world. It's approval to censure. Died to the approval or blame even of brethren or friends. Listen, the Christian life will mean you, you get looked at sometimes and you say, that's so strange. Why would they do that? Why, why, would, they, why would they do the things they're doing? Listen, Christianity is weird. And it needs to stay weird. Now do you understand that what Jesus is saying here is so out of step with the current narratives that people are giving you day by day? And every single singer from Taylor Swift to Katy Perry and every other pop singer in between, I guess, are saying something of what the philosophers call this Expressive individualism. Expressive individualism is the idea that, that nothing should get in the way of your own self-exaltation. Nothing should get in the way of your self-expression and your self-fulfillment. That you are the center of everything. Your friends are for your benefit... Your spouse is for you and not the other way around. And this gets, this even gets put into the church context. To where the church is to be some provider of goods and services for you to consume. It's self, self, self through and through. And what Jesus is saying here is so radically out of step to that. It's not about expressing yourself. It's about dying to self. This is your best life now. Following Jesus and dying to self. How is it possible to hate your life in this world? How is it possible? The answer is in verse 26. We follow Jesus. We don't focus on ourselves and our situations. We we. We, we pursue Jesus with every fiber of our being. 
And the way to love your life is to focus exclusively on yourself. On, on the way to hate your life is to focus exclusively on Christ. Seek Him and you will deny yourself. Jesus holds out a great motivation to seek Him and to hate yourself. Well, you didn't know what you were coming to this morning, did you? Thought this was going to be some feel-good sermon. Jesus says to hate your life in this world. That's not in some depressing way. But it's actually looking forward to something much greater. It's looking forward to what is to come. When one day Christ will return, he will return on that horse, that white horse, with a sword in his mouth and a tattoo on his thigh. And he will come and he will make for himself a new heaven and a new earth. And he will bring redemption and hope and restoration. So my goal in life is to help people find joy in Jesus. That's why we exist here at Capshaw. To make disciples who make disciples who behold the glory of Jesus Christ. It's the only kind of joy that lasts. And here's, here's how you find joy. You die to self. You die to little dreams, die to empty routines, die to playing life safe, die to protecting your reputation, you die to selfish, small living, die to stingy self-centeredness, die. Only then can you live. And only living brings joy. Let's pray.